Good morning, Max Rayner. Hey, Ted. How you doing, brother? I'm good, man. How about you? Good, man. How many grandchildren are you up to now? Three. Three. So, um, three, three little girls. So Mary Beth had, had the last uh, one? She she had the last one. Yes, a year and a half old. Okay. Next is going to be four in, four in a, two or three weeks. Very nice. And I got one that's almost seven. So all... If little boys are better than little girls, that's going to be something else because uh, little girls are pretty good. Man. Oh yeah, I, I, you know that's the thing. We've I, I've only had boys in my you know as children around me, but I am hoping and praying that one of my boys gets me a granddaughter so I can have somebody to really love on. You know because yeah. you know how it is when you're a, you know boys don't want to love on you. That's you know mm-hmm. how that goes. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are in more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, and today I have one of my dearest friends, Dr. Max Rayner from Benson, North Carolina. He and I have known each other for a lot of years. And uh, on top of that, we got a chance to serve together on the SECO board as trustees and then in the chairs, SECO. And uh, just a, a wonderful, amazing guy. I know y'all are going to have a great time just like I'm planning on it. And like I tell everybody when we're getting ready to have these things, I really don't care if y'all enjoy this or not. This is all about me uh, just having a great conversation with a good friend of mine. So, Max, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Ted. I'm uh, looking forward to being here and looking forward to our, to our chat. My pleasure. So I, I want to start off 
talking about the fact that, and you probably don't know this, but you were a legend to me before you and I actually ever met, uh, primarily because of your brother, Eric. Uh, Eric and I were classmates at SCO, graduated in 1993. And I can remember him telling these just massive stories about my brother max you know and i mean how he was he was saying things i mean you know eric has the tendency to sort of exaggerate a little bit and i think that's something that's rubbed off on me a lot too but he said you know he can he can just about take a contact lens from across the room and just throw it into somebody's eye you know and i was just amazed you know all the things he said but the what it really came down to was the fact that you were in a in a community that you guys kind of grew up in and that legendary status had sort of come about so um, I guess the first question I have is who was the first optometrist in y'all's family? My dad, um, is the oldest brother and my uncle is the youngest brother. And he, he went to optometry school. He's 12 years older than me. He's I'm 64. He's 76. And, um, so he was the first. And since then, and I went to optometry school, Eric did my cousin, Dan, my, my brother-in-law, Alan, uh, now we've got my daughter is an optometrist. My niece is an optometrist. I've got um, a nephew and his girlfriend that are going to school to be optometrists. Um, so we have a, a, a giant optometry clan. Yeah, I was going to ask you to name them all. And uh, then I was going to basically say, well, that's all we had time for today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> because, I mean, it is, it is really a, a heck of a legacy that optometry has shaped your family so much. What was it that made it happen that way i mean how did you guys all just get, get so excited about optometry well I, I, it seems to me that a lot of people a lot of my family they saw how successful you could be in optometry and i'm not, I'm not talking about financially successful although that's true um i'm talking about optometry is a profession where you really do good you help people sometimes you save people's lives uh, you know there's there's all kinds of ways old and new that that happens. We all know that. And I've got even a new way of saving a person's life that I'm really excited about. But, um, you know, not only do you do that, but you make that person see, which really means nothing to you, but it changes their life. And so in many ways, um, it's, it's what I think is the best profession in the world. So I think uh, my family sees that. And the nicest thing about having a family of optometrists is on Sunday at the, at the kitchen table, the other members of the family are bored to death because we're all talking about optometry. And um, that, that benefit is priceless because it's just like at SECO. The benefit of SECO is not um, the, the great CE or the great party or the great all the you know, other stuff. It's the me and you hanging out and, and talking about ideas and you telling me something that, rings the, that makes the light go off in my head or, or vice versa. And you take home a pearl that you can use that really makes you better. Yep. So that's the beautiful thing is that we've had that ability to, um, to, to, to talk things through. And maybe after we talk things through, the thing you, I would think is, I think, no, that don't work. But the other thing, too, is that the young people, the, the young optometrists don't have to make the same mistakes that I made because we, they, they, they've got somebody, uh, two or three people that go, uh, I wouldn't do that because of this, this, and this, rather than try it and see if it fails. Well, I mean, okay. So I, I like the idea of not having to be able to make the same mistakes, but I mean, how important is it to make mistakes? Uh, it's real important. You know, if you, um, if you don't shoot, you can't score. And, you know, um, so you got to try things and sometimes you're going to strike out and sometimes you're going to hit home runs. You know, we're, 
there's things we're trying right now that are that are nobody there's a thing that i'm uh i'm getting ready to do that no optometrist in america has done yet and um uh, just the state board approved it yesterday and um i'm real excited about it and uh, but it's a, it's a risk but um we, we're going to try it anyway and the reason why not only is it is it, it's a thing that that um um is going to work out really well for the practice but it's also going to save people's lives well, I'll go, yeah, you you about talk, yeah if you want to talk about it, if it's not I'll too proprietary you. or whatever no it's not it's um it's something that's been around for a long time, but it, they brought it to the, to the, the ophthalmology and optometry world just recently. And um, supposedly from what they're telling me, I'll be the first optometrist in America to do it. I'll be the second. There's an ophthalmologist in North Carolina, in North Carolina, but I'll be the second person in North Carolina to do it. Uh, and it's transcranial Doppler. It's, um, it's an ultrasound that measures the blood flow velocity and the direction of the blood flow of all the arteries that come off the circle of Willis, you know, it measures the arteries that feed the eye, the visual pathway, the visual cortex. And so basically, you, you know, the, in the long and short of it is that it's 75% of strokes happen there. So, you know, if you can, in, in theory, uh, predict the person if how, how high their chances are having a stroke or not. And we live, I live in the country. And um, so um, that's Stroke City. And there's so many people that they're, every time I tell a person about it, they say, I want to do that. I don't care what it costs. I want to do that. I want to see, I want to see what my chances are. And so I, I see it as a thing. It's kind of like glaucoma. You know, we're going to find the right people, do it. They'll either have, not have any problems or they'll have a little issue that they need watching or a more major issue that they need to go to their family doctor or to their, to their, you know, to their, to their primary care provider and start the process of looking after it or maybe something further. My buddy that's the ophthalmologist that's doing it says he's he's been doing it a couple of months. He said he's already saved three or four people's lives, the best he can tell. So uh, it's real exciting. That's amazing. I mean, uh, so this is something else. I mean, I, I have always admired about you, Max, is, I mean, there's you have sort of a gift at looking at technology and bringing it in to your practice. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about small towns as being the technology hubs, you know, and that's something, I guess, again, just from watching you from afar, that's one of the things we've tried to embrace here in Tifton in our practice as well. How do you find out about these technologies? How do you implement them into your practice so quickly? And how do you get, how do you get your guests to buy into the fact that this is something they need to have? Well, you know, again, it's the deal of, um, of um i'm not scared to strike out you know i'm 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 willing to take a chance and and if it makes it better if it has a chance to make things better and i have an overall vision too for for most things um i've always wanted when i was in optometry school i kind of envisioned that i wanted things to to uh be everything set in place and the, the exam be sort of digital where everything is everything is is done digitally and, and uniformly and, and um, without, well, I, I tell people it's because I'm a lazy guy and it's kind of true, but um, the, uh, I, I really do. Everything is done. I, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. The, the latest thing that I've done, which is I've used, I, are you familiar with iKinetics um, from Conan? Yeah. Automated I'm going to talk computer. about it. Well, 
I have, um, you know, again, while I'm talking, telling you I've invented the internet, which is uh, kind of sounds like some of that stuff. Um, I have in, in, I got bought three of them. And then I've got a couple more since I bought them. But those first three in the, my Benson office, there's a number one on there. And the number in the Roseboro office, there's a number two. And the Clinton office, there's number three. They were the first three in America. Now, there's, there's disadvantages to that because you have to go through the bugs, getting the bugs out. But basically what it does is it, it, it measures, it quantifies APDs. And they, their propaganda says that you could do the same thing with neutral, neutral density filters in about 20 minutes. But this does it automatically. So, and I, I thought when I bought it that it would be for like MAS and, you know, things like that. What it's really for is amblyopia and glaucoma. And, you know, it, it'll, sh it'll show you the 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 you know I, you know obviously you can you can um, parlay the the pupil function into the into the functionality of the optic nerve so if you see the that you've got an APD of a 0.36 and then next year it's a 0.46 and then next year it's 0.56 you might have a problem you know and so it quantifies things not just and and, and you know maybe I know you and everybody else out there are better at it optometry than I am. And you might be able to quantify um, Marcus Gunn pupils better than me, but I can tell it's they're blind or they got a little one or they ain't got one, you know? And so this makes it a lot more uh, exact than that and, and gives you a, a, one more thing. It, it doesn't, one of the things they said about it, there's no, no billing, there's no, there's no code. There's no, uh, there's no procedure code you can file. But it shows you things that you can you can you can go you can go way down the rabbit hole with other stuff because of that. But you know the you just also talked about uh, there's no code. I think that that is a trap that our profession has gotten into is trying to find a code for every single thing. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Well, I'll give you an example about that. I've got a OCT angio. I've got the Zeiss. I had that early on. And back then, when I've had it five or six years, I guess. And um, back when I bought it, it was ninety-two thousand dollars. And um, the um, the the you know the the in North Carolina, what you got paid for a macular uh, or or any any kind of OCT is about thirty-five or forty dollars. And I used to laugh about that. Thirty-eight went went into ninety-two thousand too many times, and so. Uh, you know, so that's true. buying it for that reason is not a good plan. But when you can, uh, you know, when you can see Irma, you know, in a way, you know, other, no other way you can see it. I believe you can tell I, the first week I had a lady who was about 45 years old and she said she wanted a diabetic, but she had, they had, they had been watching for it, but she wanted a diabetic. She had Irma out just wicked, wicked amounts of Irma. And uh, just so um, I, I sent her there. I was able to show her that and show her that if she's having capillary damage in the retina, she's having it in everywhere else too. And now she got controlled. And so again, back on that saving a person's life uh, thing is uh, very satisfying. I think so I've seen that a bunch. Does, does saving someone's life drive a lot of the decisions that you're making when you're practice, when you're doing things? Well, one of the reasons why I, I, I think our office has been successful um, I've got a friend that's um, that when I opened my office in Benson a hundred years ago, he opened a Mexican restaurant in Benson. He's, he's from Mexico. And um, he put in the paper, we, we had, there was articles in the paper about us opening side by side. 
he put in the paper that he didn't want to have a Mexican restaurant. He wanted to serve Mexican food to his friends. And that's and I've always thought about that. That's what I want to do too. So I want to provide our care to my family, friends, and neighbors. And um, so I have a responsibility to for them. I feel I feel it anyway. And so anything I can do to make their um, make the outcome that, that with, with with their association with me better, I'm all for it. I'm I'm trying to polish that apple all the time. So, you know, this is detection of stroke. This is looking at pupillary sizes, um, you know, and things that probably when we were going through school didn't even come up in conversation, much less were thoughts about, um, you know, what were, well, I, I guess I, I got a good question. Um, what is the craziest thing you've tried to do? Um, and what was the second craziest thing you tried to do that actually worked? <laughs> um, well, the dumbest thing, I, the thing that pop, pops in my mind is the dumbest thing, which I'm still using, is I've done specular microscopy on people for 10 or 12 years. And so when I did it, I, I was looking at, you know, just the images and the numbers. I didn't even know what I was looking at. I had three of them. I'd spent $100,000 on three of those uh, spectrum microscopes uh, in uh, from Conan. And um, I, I went to a lecture from Craig Thomas at SECO, and I, and I learned how to do it after about four years of having it. So, so that was uh, um, one where I wasn't really proud of, but it sure was the truth. And then there's uh, the dumbest thing I've ever done is, do you remember back... Um, this is a long time ago. The company's called was called Recontech, I believe. But it basically it was one of those TV things where um, where you you put the TV in your waiting room and it showed ads, and you got you supposed you you could probably cost you it cost I think it cost me fifteen or twenty thousand dollars back then, which was way big money twenty five years ago or thirty years ago. And um, supposedly these companies were going to put ads on there and pay you back. And of course they never paid you back and never paid anything. And, you know, the leasing company owned it now, the, uh, the company that gave it to you was long gone. Yeah. So I was stuck to that. Mine wasn't quite that high tech. This, this was like this. Um, it was an led board. Um, all the lights were red and they sent you a three and a half floppy disk once a month to put in there with all the different data. And, you know, you could, you could create your own things, but yes, they sold it on the point of, Oh, well, all these manufacturers are going to want to buy ads for it. You know, and just like you, I got stuck with this huge board that didn't really do a whole lot. I mean, at least you had a, you know, a flat screen monitor out of it. I, all I got was a big red board that didn't do anything for me at all. You know, it was so, uh, and the, their deal was so dumb too. They had, I remember, they had a gun and a hairdryer and they said, get your eyes checked. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> so what did the gun and the hairdryer have to do with it? You would pick up the gun to dry your hair and set oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was, hey, you lost me on that one for a second. Um, <laughs> she's to the hairdryer. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were talking earlier too, about one of the big things about, you know, not just, uh, Seco, but, and, you know, Seco is near and dear to both of us. And I think that part of the reason it is so is because of relationships that are built. How important are friendships and relationships, not just for optometrists, but I, I think that the thing that scares me the most is now, you know, running my business, I turn around and look and the majority of the people that I have my closest relationships with 
live over a hundred miles away because they're all my colleagues. They're not right here in my own community. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think sometimes young people think that they are ad- adversarial to their, to their, to their competition. You know, I, um, I, I always think about uh, the uh, way I practice optometry as, um, as uh, the way I played baseball. I played a lot of baseball and um, back in the day in another lifetime. And um, we, we would, we would play, when we were playing, we, I would hurt you on the field. You know, and I knew you'd hurt me too. But when we finished, we'd go have a beer and hang out and, they were, you know, we're friends forever, still friends now that I played with and against. And that's sort of the same. I think of the optometry is that same way. I'm not talking about hurting any optometrists, but, um, you know, I, I, I will, anything I'm doing, I've got an optometrist down the street in Benson who I, I don't know what he thinks about me, but I think he's a great guy and I'm, I'll help him any way I can. You know, we'll, we'll do what we, we, um, we, we, um, um, have no, no, no real animus because there's so much to go around. There's no reason to, to, um, to be, to be, try to hoard it in or hold it in. And so that always works better. The, um, um, the thing about, um, getting out there and friends, one of the things, I don't know, that might not be answering the question, but one of the things I've always noticed that the best thing a person can do is walk down the street and meet people and, and become, get relationships. I've, I've been on bank boards and, and um, uh, children's home boards and community health center boards and, and all kinds of things. And the more you're known, I think, uh, I think that a, a, a potential patient, they just want to know you're a good guy. They just want to have, you know, the, the, you know, one of the things that I've told my, my, my other family that when they start out is that, um, no person in America is going, man, I can't see. I sure do wish an eye doctor to come to my town. I cannot see. There's nobody in America that's waiting for somebody to come to them to, so they can, so they can see. They've gone somewhere. They've handled their problems somehow. So every person that walks into your office that gets, gets you to help them has to choose you, and they choose you over everyone else in the world. So um, if, is it location? Is it because they know you? Is it because of price? Is it because of uh, a nice-looking office? Is it because of whatever, whatever reason they chose you over everybody else? And so you got to make them do that. And so getting out there and showing them that you're a regular guy and a regular person regular person and that they're either making them feel like they have a connection with you is the way that patients flood in. So, so why do you think they're choosing you, Eric? I mean, uh, Max, sorry, I'm going to call you Eric about five times. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I think they, they, they see you when you, I'm also like in, in Vincent, I'm a town commissioner. And um, so I make a lot of connections that way. I'm involved in politics pretty big. And so I make a lot of connections that way. And so, they just see you as a regular guy and they, they see you for the person that you are. And they maybe some of them don't like it. I think in the politics part, there are some that don't like it, but a lot of them really do like it. And they uh, come because of that. So do you think that's something that's universal? I mean, does it translate as well in a big city as it does in a small town? Mm-mm. I don't think so. And, and of course I don't, um, I don't understand urban. You know, I would never put a practice in an urban area, not because I have anything against it. So I don't understand it. You know, I, I believe that, um, 
Uh, well, I'll tell you, before, before I tell you this part, I'll tell you that I've always said that the, the salary of an optometrist is directly proportional to the distance from a Starbucks. You know, the more urban you are, the less you're going to make, the more rural you are, the, first, the better you're going to do. And um, so um, the, the, the urban, the urban in, in my, this might be, people might jump through the screen at me that are watching this, but in my view, um, urban practices are product driven and rural practices are service driven. And so their accent is on a different thing. And so um, I have nothing with products. I have nothing, no problem with glasses contacts, but, but there's a lot more that we do than that. And there's a, it's a great thing to have a good mix, to have a perfect mix. Sometimes though, in urban areas, it's really hard to do when you can throw a rock to your left and hit an eye doctor and throw a rock to your right and hit an eye doctor. You're kind of stuck doing one thing. And then that's, that's really true. Um, and you, you have done a lot of times of speaking to students and things, you know, going through uh, your different organizations you've done. Um, you know, that's the one thing I think I've come about with is so many of them say, you know, you know, I'll have a conversation. So what are you going to do when you graduate? And the first, Oh, I'm going to Atlanta, you know, so I can do all these things that I learned here in optometry school. Well, that's real great. I hope you're really good at one of those things. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a guy down the street that is world-class at, at one thing. And next door to him is a lady who is world-class at a different thing. And they all, there's hundreds of those people doing one thing but they all got it covered. So if you think you're going to do it all, you're in trouble. Now, if yeah. you want to come and do what you want to do, all of that stuff, come to Tifton where you can, you know, see a, somebody got popped in the eye with a bungee cord trying to put something on their truck this afternoon, you know, followed by, uh, or just a general practice type kind of thing, followed by a contact lens evaluation, followed by an amblyo, followed by a, you know, a foreign body. And that's a whole day right there. You know, um, I think that really opens up the eyes. I do think though that I'm in trouble um, myself because you talked about the, the uh, salary versus a Starbucks. They put a Starbucks here in Tifton about 10 years ago. So I'm in trouble now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be, <laughs> you might lose. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're developing these relationships, I mean, how many, how many of those things come down to, um, a decision you made that had nothing to do with business? About 99% of them. That's right. It's just uh, being out there and serving. And I'm, I don't know if I'm like you, Ted, this, in this way, but I, this is true for me. I have done so many things, so many Forrest Gump things in my life. And the reason why I've done them is because I was too stupid to say no. You know, and so I just um, keep doing these things because, because, uh, I didn't realize I couldn't do them. And so I seemed to be able to do them. So, um, that's, that's, um, the patience just, um, if you do that and you, you do it, do it well, you'll never run out of contacts, which means you'll never run out of patience. You know, we, we don't advertise. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do anything except have a phone have a call center and you know we're right now in my offices we're doing 100 patients a day so, so give give the audience an idea of what benson north carolina is i mean where is it located what's the size of the community that sort of thing well, benson um benson is uh, a small town east of raleigh north of fable north carolina and it's about uh 3800 people 
But, you know, when, when you say that, that's a little misleading because in the area code of my area code is 18,000 people. And in my county is 210,000 people. And it's the fastest growing county in North Carolina. And so the, the, the drawing area is huge. That's not my biggest office. My biggest office is in Clinton, North Carolina, which is in Sampson County, which is 30 miles east. And that's an office that uh, it's about seven, 7,500 square feet. And we, uh, we, we, we have ophthalmologists that come and we have basically an, a waiting room, a, a pretest flow, an exam flow on one side, a pretest flow, an exam flow on the other side, and it all comes out in the, in the, in the dispensary, in the gift shop. So um, with that, that office, we, we, I'll see 45 or so patients a day, and the ophthalmologist that comes will see 45 patients in a half day, a lot of times when they come. So, um, and then when the other optometrists there, the younger optometrists, I'll see 45 or so, and they'll see about 30. And so that's, that's an, like yesterday, that was where we were, I was, and we probably saw 74 or five patients. So uh, it's, it's, it's something that can be done. And well, then I have another office that's smaller in Roseboro, and we're open about half the time there. And we see about, when, when, the, when the young doctor's there, they're, they're seeing about 30 patients a day, and I'm seeing about 45, wherever we go. So um, we, we have no trouble, because in the country, there, there's so many people that need help. We're not, we, we've never, we never had an opening unless we, unless something really was going like COVID time and stuff like that, you know, so, so uh, we've been so lucky that way. That's the, the beautiful thing about, about being rural in the country is people think, I think people that are, that are rural, I mean, that are urban think nobody's out there. Well, yeah, there's a lot more people out there than you think, and they all need help. And, the, you know, the, I, I believe also that that optometrists should go where the need is. And there are three big groups of people that need eye care and need help. That's old people, minority people, and poor people. And they, um, those, those people have lots of problems. You know, people sometimes because, because they're young and they have to go to urban centers to find a, find a life mate, you know, they, um, they don't think they can find it in the country. And I get, I get that part. They, um, they go there. They mostly just uh, spend dollars and give out contacts and glasses. They never experience the, the real scope of their, of, their, of, of their capabilities, which they, they work so hard in school for, you know, and then they, they sometimes get out. And I, in my view, I see them getting at a place that just uh, makes them wither away. After a few years, they're, 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 they're solid in a way that they wish they weren't. Do you, I mean, so, you know, let's say that you're this young graduate, you're unmarried, you're wanting to find your mate, you're, you know, you still want to make a little bit of a living. Um, you know, what is it, why is it that you couldn't just work in a big city for three or four years and then go somewhere else? Well, you can, but you can, again, if you, um, you come out with all these skills and, you know, my, my daughter, my niece are, 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 have been practicing for one year. I've got another optometrist that's with me that's been practicing for one year. They are not experienced. They are, their experience level is, is not that great, but they are brilliant. They are way smarter than me. They are, they, they're, they're savvy in ways that I've never been. And um, so I'm so impressed with them. And, I, and that's what really made me, makes me think that so many times people come out and get themselves in a situation where they're, 
where their skills just degrade. And if you get in a situation like in Tifton or in Benson where you can, where you can see full scope, the, the full practice of optometry, you can grow and, um, and, and improve and become, become a, 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 something that you, that you dream to be when you start the process. Do you feel like our profession has um, reached a point where we've gotten too sedentary with our skills, or do you feel like we're, there's an excitement now growing that we're going to have mag- massive changes in our future? I think the only certainty we have is there's going to be massive changes in the future. Uh, the, the analogy I always uh, think about, or, or the, 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 the example I think about of that, is uh, HEDIS guidelines. You know, I think HEDIS guidelines changed the world for me because there was a time when, um, when you know, the primary care providers would either, they had, there were, there were two, two, two possibilities when they considered an optometrist. They either referred away from me or they were ambivalent. They didn't care. You know, nowadays it's, it's exactly opposite. They either refer to you or they don't care. You know, and we have, because we're in the country, we have a massive amount of, um, of family doctors and primary care providers that uh, send patients to us. The other thing, too, is that, and so that's a lot of times because of HEDIS guidelines, because they need that letter. My, my buddy that's an internist who um, is in town as a giant practice, he bought a retinal camera, and I helped him buy it. And he, I showed him the, the things of how to do it and the caveats of it, and he still bought a really crap. His, his stuff is really crap. But uh, he, uh, he, he, he said, Max, I got to do it. He said, you know, you're, you're popping those letters out and, you know, we're, we're automated. So we just hit some buttons and it writes the, generates the letter and, you know, they get what they need. He said, I can't get anybody else to write me a letter. And uh, he said, we try and said, it's, you know, it's, it's dinging him on, on his um, MIPS and all that stuff score because he can't get the letter. And um, so um, the, the beauty of it is that, um, oh, I forgot what I was talking about. Now I'm over. The, the, uh, the beauty of it is that, that, that um, um, family doctors now are more refer, referred to us more than we ever have had them. The other thing, too, is we had a fight back a few, 10 or 15 years ago about children's vision. And we got shot down in North Carolina because, of, you know, we, we lost. But what it made the pediatricians all of a sudden do is they became more aware of it. So now every, if we see kids, a lot of times it's the pediatrician, they, they've gotten in the habit now where they get a kid and if they're shy or if they, if it might be that they fail, it might not be they fail. They just didn't read the chart that the, the, the tech over there tried to let them read. They do send them to, op, send them to optometrist, send them to optometrist, send them to optometrist. So we're just loaded with things like that. So that's, that's just two examples of, of the situations that, that have changed, that have benefited us in ways that we would maybe have never expected. And um, I think other things like that, like the transcranial Doppler. Um, the, um, again, I, I talked about how, how, um, how beneficial that could be, but on the, if we were talking about practice thing, that is crazy profitable. It's crazy. It's like, like to the tune of a half million dollars a year is what I'm expecting. And so, um, so the, there's uh, so many things that are, 
that come out that that we we haven't even thought of yet that that are going to make it um, better. But now, if you're just if you're just um, doing optometry, you know, kind of um, in a way that's um, refractive, only refractive, only you know, do, doing the, the minimum stuff, you know, you might be in trouble. One of the things that I, I talk about, we talked about before, Ted, I'm sure. And I, are you familiar with Blue Ocean Strategy? Yes. Yeah, that's um, that's the thing. That I, Spell it out for I a believe, moment. All right. Well, Blue Ocean Strategy is a book. It's about retailing. And basically, there's two oceans, red oceans and blue oceans. Red oceans is where you compete on lowest price and cheapest crap you can give them, give somebody to get to make them take it and and uh you're all out there fighting together all the retailers are tearing each other apart trying to out outload the other one and give less the least least they can get by with that they can so it's a miserable situation blue ocean strategy is where you do stuff that nobody else is doing and you're out there on the ocean flying right by yourself and you the, the your wind's behind you and the and the um, the uh, ocean's wide open. That's where I've always wanted to be. One of the one of the things I've we kind of have themes in the office. That's a little crazy sounding, but we do. But one of the things that we 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 one of our themes for many years was we want to do it because it's hard. We want to do what what chains is what Walmart won't do, and that's um, that's been very successful for. Why do you feel like it's been successful? Well, just because. Um, People need, 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 need things that, well, people need things that, um, that you, you don't, you don't think they need and, uh, they'll buy things you don't think they'll buy. You know, the, we are not, my areas are not rich by any stretch. They're not, they're not the most poor place in the world either, but they're not rich at all. And we pretty much only use, um, lenses that, um, are, are HD lenses, uh, so um, we've got people in them. I've got thousands of people in uh, freeform progressives. And the beauty of that, which is kind of evil, is that you can't get out of it. You know, they, 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 they um, sometimes a person will come. I love this when they do this. They'll say, um, well, Dr. Rayner, they come in and they'll say, Dr. Rayner, I got glasses from you three years ago and they were $600. I didn't want to spend that much. So I went to, um, to, uh, I don't know if I can say the words of that. I, I went to a chain. Yeah. Went, and, to a uh, went to a place. Went to a place that was the best in America. And, uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and, uh, I can't see out of these glasses. I said, and I always tell them, would you say that one more time? <laughs> Cause it makes my legs shake. I love it. And, and so, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, speaking of that, that place, that, there's a saying about that. You probably, you know, the saying too, that probably cracks me, it cracks me up. It says that place is the, everybody goes to that place one time. And that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the best. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so, uh, um, but there's, there's so many things. I, I think, um, if you're always pushing the envelope, you're going to make some mistakes, but you're going to hit a lot of home runs and um, um, you're going to always be successful and you're going to always be um, um, uh, excited about 
about optometry. And that's the thing too about, about SECO and about meetings and all that stuff. Everybody needs to get their batteries recharged. And that's one of the things that happens at, at those meetings too. If, you, if you're just staying home all the time and never going to the things and getting everything, um, is not getting out there and seeing colleagues as much as you can, you're never going to get your batteries recharged and you're going to not be happy with optometry. But doing that makes it's a big, big benefit. So you sort of broached the door already on uh, education a little bit on this thing. And, and I, you and I definitely are on the same page on this one. How does, how does education in optometry need to change? Well, the biggest way I think it needs to change, and I, I've, I've said this to Seco many times, and, and sometimes um, I'm not sure, you know, people all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't think they necessarily agree with me. But one of the things I've always wanted at Seco is for it to be controversial. The more controversial it is, the more bet, the better it is, and the more people are going to disagree or disagree. I don't care if they all disagree, you know. But if they go in and, and listen, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of that that I've never done, um, and I can't even think of what to call now. But I have a childhood friend who is um, is an iridologist. Yes, is that what I, think, I think that's what it is. But yeah. They, they, they diagnose everything from By the looking iris. At the iris. Yeah, it's kind of like doing the foot she, thing too. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of same stuff. She is the world renowned iridologist. She, and, and I've always thought about bringing her and letting her, I was, I would always hate thinking about, hate to do it because there's some, some buttholes out there that would tear her apart, you know, and I don't want that, but, but I always thought about how good that would be to have her come and speak it at, at somewhere at Seco or something. It's just to see what, what her, what her thinking is and see if there's, there's many things we disagree with, but what if there was some things that we thought, wow, that agree with that. So yeah, she's, um, I've had people come and, and, uh, I had a PA recently who came and said, um, she wanted a picture of her iris cause we could image everything, you know? And I said, why do you want that? She said, well, I'm, I'm studying iridology and I'm studying it from this person. I said, yeah, I know her. She's my, she's my friend. She's from child, my childhood friend. She said, no, she's not. I've texted her. And so she sent her a signed book and uh, she lives in California. She sent her a sign. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's an example of, um, of, of controversy. And, and there have been so many controversial things in the past that we could, we could have, um, you know, back when, which is not so controversial now, but you remember how 10 years ago, text refracting was just taboo, you know, and, mm -hmm. and now it's uh, not so much, but, but, you know, I, I'd love to have all those issues front and center so that we can talk through them. And um, I'll give you an example of, of one that, that I, I wish we had done. And you might say, well, we've done that. But, but uh, I have never seen how an exam is done on an iPhone. You know, how, how they do exams on an iPhone. I think we should have a class where they, they do an exam on an iPhone and they show you exactly what's happened. So, cause you know, it's gotta be hokey, but, uh, but you don't know. I don't know even how to how to talk bad about it because I don't know um, what they exactly do. I don't know if you hold your eye up to the phone or what, you know, you know, so so um, um, the there, there's just a million things like that. But I think um, that um, education should be should be pertinent to the to the to the day. I'm talking about controversy. And I, I tell you one thing also, I think about controversy I think that's where all of the disruptive technology lives is in that controversy. 
um, mm-hmm. because the controversy typically is built around, well, I want to keep doing it the way I've been doing it. Well, we think it should be done this way. And in that controversy comes about those changes. It's the Uber, it's the Amazon, it's, you know, um, I mean, hate it, love it, whatever, you know, the online refractions. I think that if anything that helped us and is should continue to help us become better doctors because it's mm-hmm. pointing to the fact that the refraction is not the eye exam. And yeah, so many of us have built our practices on the eye exam being the refraction. And now that's showing that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's where having these discussions in a large group setting are important. Uh, I, I totally agree with you on that. And I also think that education timeframes need to be changed. Um, the, you know, the days of a two hour presentation um, probably should have never taken place in the first place, but you know, I, I, I don't know that it's the best use of our time trying to consume two hours of information and being able to walk away with something that was truly meaningful when we're probably taking 10 minutes of knowledge out of that two hour time slot. That's exactly right. You know, you, the ophthalmologist, you see the way they do it. A lot of times they'll have like five or 10 minutes slurs of different things all at one time in those two hours. And that seems like a really good idea. Um, how, I mean, are you getting a chance to see other educational opportunities outside of optometry? No, not really. I just, I just, some ophthalmology stuff a little bit, but not, not much, not. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, but this doesn't relate, but I, I, when I was on a bank board, I had to get 25 hours of see for banking every, every year. So I did a lot of that, but. Uh, not anything health-wise other than just asking. Okay. I want to spend uh, some time because I don't want to get this swept under the rug uh, because I think it's really important. Um, But you've been dealing with Parkinson's for -hmm. quite a while. And I'd love to get um, how that has shaped who you are, um, how that has um, affected the way you practice. um, What were some of the first signs? I mean, for me, uh, I had a familial tremor that I found out when I was about 15 years old that I had in my right hand and it made it difficult to do certain tasks unless I was moving it. But if I was having to hold still, it shook really bad. Um, mm-hmm. by the time I was interviewing for optometry school, it was a concern of mine and, you know, potentially could have played a role that would have kept me from doing what I needed to do, but somehow was able to figure out a way to get around it. Um, I presume some of those same kind of thoughts. So just tell me your story on Parkinson's. Well, I've, um, best way I can figure, I've had it about 10 years. And I used to, I had a tremor in my left and my right hand. And um, I thought it was just a non-essential tremor, but I, I was just saying that I didn't know what it was. And so it just got a little worse, got a little worse. And I went and my family doctor sent me to the neurologist and said, yeah, you got my Parkinson's. And so, um, um, you know, I have uh, basically, and he said, but it's just on your right side. So as long as it's on your right side only, that's cool. That's good. It's all right. It's not bad. And so my foot shakes a little bit on my right side and my hand shakes a little bit on my right side. And my, uh, my hand down 
my, my lower forearm is stiff. And that's, that's basically all it, it, it does. And so, but now my left side started shaking a little bit and I thought, oh no, you know, so, uh, um, but I was at the neurologist um, recently and uh, I see people in the office sometimes that come in in a wheelchair and they're kind of, uh, you know, you know, catatonic. Right. Out of and so, and, and I asked her, I said, okay, I've been going like this. What's my chances of going like that? She said, zero. I said, well, wow. She said, I said, why do you say that? She said, well, I've thought about that a lot. And she said, um, you know, when you say Parkinson's, it's like saying cancer. Uh, there's, there's brain cancer and skin cancer and prostate cancer and lung cancer and breast cancer. And um, so there's all kinds of different kinds of cancer, prostate cancer. There's all kinds of cancer and they're all different but they're all lumped in one thing. And it's the same with Parkinson's. There's some Parkinson's that go like that. And some Parkinson's that go like that. She said, you, you look like to me, you're going to be 10 years from now, a little worse than you are now. And 10 years from then, you're going to be a little worse than you are then. And so that was really, um, um, made me feel really good. So hopefully that's the case. And the other thing too, is I was taking the carbidopa levodopa and I was taking about one tenth of what I was, what you could take in a, in a daily dose. She said, dude, you ain't even taking it right. And so you're still not so bad. That's a really good sign. So I, I've upped that a little bit. And my, my tremors are not as bad, although they're still there. And I don't have any um, any any um, mental issues. But would I know that if I did? So maybe I did. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. <laughs> okay, good. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. <laughs> so uh, uh, the, uh, but, but again, the, one of the sayings I, I, we were talking about earlier that I said early on is that Parkinson's bothers other people about you worse than it bothers you. And I get, I get people those sincere looking there. I said, like, you okay? You know, no, yeah. Okay. You know, but um, you know, the, the thing that worries me is um, I, I don't, I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of losing my mental capabilities. That's, that's the thing that does that scares me, but uh, that's can be anybody and anything. So it just, I'll, I'll tell you about this one, one thing. I was sitting with the, the guy, the neurologist that I started with that on Raleigh Neurology. And he's my age, and we'd sit back there and shoot the breeze. And he said, Max, are you scared? I said, no, brother, I've lived about 10 lifetimes. I've done all kinds of crazy things. If I live 30 years or, or one year, I'm not going to be no sissy about it. And uh, that ain't really what I said. But he, he said, I said, but I know you heard that before. And he looked at me and said, I've never heard that. I thought, oh no, I am going to be a sissy about it. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's the only thing that, that I'm having an issue with that might make me uh, change. My, I'm, I'm planning on um, my idea of retiring is to work two days a week. You know, I've got this monster I have to manage. And um, so I'm still going to probably do that. And, cut back patients. I'm doing patients four days a week now. And I'm hoping when I bring this other doctor that's coming, hopefully in, in the end of the summer next year, that um, I'm going to move it to two days a week. But I'm really, the only thing that's giving me a problem is like taking metal out of somebody's eye or doing stuff like that. You know, I'll sometimes I'll have to have the, the scribe hold their lid and I'll do it with my left hand because I'm left-handed. So that's, that's good. But my shaking's in my right hand. But I can, I, I can, if I if I hold their lid with my right hand, the whole head shake. Right. <laughs> and so, so I either got to quit shaking in my, my left, my right hand, or start shaking in my left hand so it'll all match. But uh, 
but uh, it, it, that's the only issue. And um, um, uh, it's not been that big of a problem yet, but if that gets any worse, that might affect how much I practice. So you're, you're going to try to get yourself down to retirement of two days a week. What are you going to do with the other five? Well, I kind of had done that before and I'm going to try to do different because um, the last time I did it, I was working uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I was off uh, the rest of the time. And most of the time I'd sit here at my kitchen table and look out the window at the garden and sit with the dog. And, and I, I didn't like that. Okay. But I need to do more than that. So I'm hoping that when I, when I do, when I, when I, when I do move back that way, that I'll fill my time a little better, which I think that takes an effort to do. So who's running your practice then? Well, um, I know we probably talked about, uh, I, I, I looked at private equity yeah. because I didn't want my daughter to, um, have to be, spend her life tied to this monster that I'm tied to. And, um, but actually she really likes it. She's, she's really has an affinity for it. And so, uh, I'm, I'm really, um, excited about that, you know, because my offices are like, I've got four, four live children and one, uh, one not live child. That's my, my practice. And, uh, I want to see them live. And so that's exciting to me that she's, she's wanting to, to take it over and make it leave. And so, uh, so she's, my plan right now is for, for her to take it and kind of phase in while I'm phasing out. That's great. That's amazing. You know, that's, that's kind of, I think the one thing that we all worry about the most, those of us that are owning our own practices is the legacy of what's going to happen to that practice. And you know, the, uh, for me, um, you know, that's hopefully going to turn into, um, my associate that's with me now having half of it. And my son that's in optometry school in Pikeville having the other half. And, you know, when I'm ready for them to have the half, you know, of course, um, you know, but until then I'm going to run it like it's mine, you know, and of course I'm going to take their input and let them have a, a very large vote on what we do. Um, because I, I'm, I'm also a firm believer that I don't have all the ideas and I don't have all the answers. And, um, in fact, my team, not just Dr. Harrison, my associate, but my team comes up with so many brilliant and wonderful ideas. Um, but, I, but I heard someone say recently, in fact, she was on the podcast about a year ago, Audrey Nelson. She said, uh, ideas never used are worthless. And, um, so I've, we've, that's really struck a chord with us because we come up with so many really good ideas and don't implement them. Mm-hmm. How do you find it important or how do you actually take these crazy harebrained ideas that you have and implement them? How do you put them into play? Well, the, 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 the ability, the, the situation I'm in where I'm the lone wolf, um, makes it easy because I know I can make a mistake and I can pay for it. If I, if I, if I make that mistake, you know, when you, when somebody else's money's involved or somebody else's gets hurt from what you do, it's a little harder to do it. So you can't be as aggressive. So that's the, 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 the biggest thing. And, and that's, what's worried me about, about um, letting other people buy in, in in times past is that, I would, it would limit what we could do because they'd go, we, you know, they, they don't think um, maybe in the same terms that I think of, and they're not willing to take a chance. They're scared. It's going, 
make a, make them lose a thousand dollars of their money or something like that, which would be devastating for them. And for me, it's you know it's just gambling. Yeah. So uh, it's hard. That's the the biggest the biggest reason I could do it is because I, I was a person that got the benefit if it was a hit and got the got the downside if it won. And I could live with that. That's a you know that's a great great way to have it. Um, I want to make sure that we wrap this up in a, in a way that's given everybody enough time to, to digest what we talked about, because all this stuff has been amazing. If you could leave the group with just like this one last thought, Hey, if you don't get here, anything else from Max Rayner, you should hear this. What is it? I think, well, I think, um, I can tell you, I think what are the secrets to success of, uh, of a private practice? And that is that you want to make sure that you, 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 like we said, with the Mexican restaurant thing, you want to treat people like they're your family and you're trying to give them the best you can. And, and I think you need to have the highest tech practice you can have. And the, the benefit of that is that two things you want, you want them, if they go somewhere else to look around and go, I'm in the wrong place. And so that's one good thing. If you can, if you can do that, they win. And the other thing too, is that if you make your practices so high tech and so big that when somebody comes to compete with you, they, uh, they can't really overtake you. They can only, the, the best they can hope for is to make you both commit, uh, to kill you both. You know, they, uh, they'd have to spend so much money to compete with you that they just won't do it. You know, it's like, it's kind of, optometry practices are like, the, you remember the club? Mm-hmm. The, the thing on the car that went on your drive, that you're, that you're yep. on your steering wheel? You want your practice to be like the club so that they move on to the next town where nobody's got a club on their thing and there's a world of practices like that with no club on the call. So um, um, I think if you keep pushing, it'll, you know, um, you, you'll, you'll win in ways you'd never imagine. Well, thanks, Max. I uh, appreciate your time today. Um, this, this has been amazing time. It's, it's, got, it's kind of funny uh, for those of you that don't get to hear the leading up to all these kind of conversations that I have with people, I, I send an invitation out and almost every single one of them, including you said, well, I don't know what we're going to talk about. I don't know what I've got to add. I don't know what you could have taken out at this point of how what you said today, Max. And I, that was just an amazing time. And I, I'm so glad you spent it with me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ted. It's good to see you, man. I've gotten so much out of these conversations with people, um, learned a ton. Uh, it also has forced me to just ask a question and shut up and just sit there and wait. <laughs> and sometimes it's excruciating, not just because, I mean, you know, there's times like even today you were having this, this great run and all I want to do is go, Oh, at Max. And let me tell you about this, you know, and just to sit back and just let it all happen it's amazing how many times when I have just sat back, whatever was in my head came out by the other person. So I didn't have to say it, you know, and I think that adds more to the conversation by me not actually having the conversation. I know that sounds weird, but it really does. I understand. Yeah. That's good.